If you would, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 21. And uh, as I mentioned, these are Michael's notes that I'll be kind of working through to the best of my ability. And uh, hopefully you'll maybe see his style come out and, and uh, the person here will kind of disappear. That it'll just be the Lord's words uh, and, and nothing more. <clears throat> and the, uh, the delivery will just uh, be disguised. So uh, our sections this morning are actually going to break down in, into three. And the first section is going to be verses 15 to 19. And I kind of alluded um, earlier in our opening that one of the themes that we're going to see is the Lord working miraculously through um, Paul's hands. And in verses 15 to 19, our section is going to reveal all that God had been doing among the Gentiles through Paul. All right, so Paul is going to be relaying to Jews, uh, believers in Jerusalem, all that the Lord had been doing through him as he went to the regions and ministered to the Gentiles. Our second section, if you're just kind of writing those down in advance, is going to be verses 20 to 22. And what we're going to see in verses 20 to 22 is that James is going to inform Paul of some controversy that has arisen over Paul's ministry. So in verses 20 and 22, there's going to be some controversy that has arisen regarding Paul's ministry, and James is going to let Paul know about that. And then our final section will be verses 23 to 26. In verses 23 to 26, what we're going to see is Paul submitting to James's request, and James is going to give Paul some suggestions and some requests to help mitigate and to help soften uh, the controversy and, and hopefully even solve this controversy that he's going to share with him. So that'll be our three sections. And, you know, just kind of as an opener, um, have you ever, you know, experienced kind of like a, a mountaintop experience or just a, a really great accomplishment in life, some sort of success that you're just you're kind of proud about? You're happy. You're like, God, this is really cool. Thanks. And then right on the heels of that, there's some opposition, there's some controversy. And, and to the degree that maybe even this great feeling you have and this awesome joy starts to get squelched and suppressed because of this controversy or this negativity that has come up. You know, I kind of think about um, when Jesus was baptized. He comes out of the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and you hear a voice from the Father that says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And what does Matthew record immediately after that event? That Jesus is led into the wilderness to basically have a dialogue with Satan. So right after this great mountaintop experience... And, and, and God the Father declaring, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, you have this shadow of temptation and this dialogue that has to occur with the devil himself. I've been there. I've had these, these neat successes, these great opportunities, these cool things that have happened in my life. Lord, this was so neat. Thank you for doing that. And then somebody might come along and go, i got a problem with that i got a problem with you. That's kind of what we're going to see here, in a way. We're going to see that as we work through 15 to 26 in chapter 21. Look at um, verses 15 to 19 for a minute there. Verse 15 says, And after these days, Luke says, After these days we, uh, we got ready and we started on our way to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So what we see in verse 17 is 
that the believers in Jerusalem received Paul and Luke and the others with a very, very warm and friendly reception. And Luke actually places some emphasis there. Um, he, he uses a verb and an adverb there that says that they gladly, I mean, he goes out of his way to emphasize this great, warm reception that they had received by the believers there, James and the elders in Jerusalem. They were truly happy to see Paul and his traveling companions. Do you have friends like that? Do you have some relationships like that? That maybe you haven't seen for a while, and when you catch up with each other, you, you just know that it's that bond that you have in Christ Jesus that is tighter than any other bond in this world. And, you know, you might just have this big embrace and hugging and rejoicing. It is so good to see you. You know, I've got some friends like that that I may not get to see regularly in my life, but every time I see them, I can, like, pick up right where we left off. You know, not all friendships and relationships are like that. Not everybody can you maybe not talk to for a few months, and then when you speak or see each other, it's like no time had passed. And so these believers in Jerusalem were, were happy to see Paul and his traveling companions. They were, they were glad. And in verse 18 and 19, we see that Paul is going to meet with James and the elders the very next day. It says, and now the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Well, it's kind of interesting, right? Um, we don't see any notation about Peter and, and John and some of the other guys that we know had been large players in the early church in Jerusalem. Remember when we first started studying Acts and we saw how active John and Peter and many of those guys were there in Jerusalem? Well, we don't see that they're necessarily mentioned here. And one of the reasons is that at this time, uh, Peter was probably ending up in Rome. Uh, Andrew went to Syria and possibly with Matthias as well. And then those guys went on to Asia Minor, Turkey, Greece, and the regions around Russia. Um, Bartholomew, uh, Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, those guys appear to have uh, spent time in the region east of Syria and possibly in India before Bartholomew went on to Armenia, Ethiopia, and southern Arabia. Um, what about Philip? Remember, there were two Philips. There was uh, Philip the disciple and there was Philip the evangelist that we learned about as one of the choosing of the seven in Acts chapter 6. Well, uh, Philip the Apostle possibly went to North Africa and Asia Minor. Uh, Simon the Zealot had ministered in Persia. And John, you guys kind of know what happened to John. John spent some time in and around Ephesus for a while, and then he ultimately was exiled to the island of Patmos, right, where he recorded Jesus' revelation to him in Revelation. So these guys have all had ministries of their own and have kind of spread out. And Luke doesn't mention them here in this visit. He simply says that Paul and Luke and his traveling companions met with James and the elders there in Jerusalem. And they met for a couple of reasons, right? We've been following along in our study of Acts, and we know that for a couple of chapters now, Paul and, and Luke have reminded us that they are taking up an offering for the saints because the saints in Jerusalem are heavily persecuted. They're still in the, the, the heat right there, right? The, uh, the Mecca, bad analogy, but um, the, the uh, homeland of Judaism. And so they're being heavily persecuted. And the last couple of references we had seen uh, when Saul was um, stomping out persecution, it said that there was a heavy persecution that started and many fled, that he was going into their homes and yanking them out of their homes and throwing them in jail, and many fled outside of Jerusalem to the diaspora and other regions. And so Paul, as he's been traveling in these other regions, in these Gentile regions, he's been sharing the gospel, he's been... Um, 
revealing Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and Jews. And as he's been ministering to people, he's been taking up an offering that he was intending to take back to Jerusalem. So that's one of the reasons that he was here, was to do that. Give them the offering that he had collected. Now, the other item, the other agenda item, if you will, was in verse 19. It says, And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, some of your translations might say that he began to relate to them in detail, uh, and I believe that's probably what happened. But if your text says one by one, I think we can reasonably assume that what Luke is intending to relay to us is that Paul probably went through event by event by event as he shared how God was working through him to share the gospel with Gentile believers. When it says one by one, he was probably thinking about all these neat things that we've studied so far that God was doing at his own hands. Just, you know, just think about the regions that Paul went to. Um, he went to Galatia, uh, to cities like Lystra, Derby, Antioch, and Pisidia. Um, he went to Asia, uh, Laodicea, Ephesus, Troas. He went to the region of Macedonia, to cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. He went to Greece, to cities like Athens and Corinth. So you can assume he's probably talking about all these places that God had led him and was working through him. And think about even the events that occurred in those places. And this is just an abbreviated list here that Michael's put together, but even what we've studied in Acts, it's like, oh my gosh, we've covered a lot of ground. We've seen a lot of things. Think about this. Remember the vision that God gave to Paul about going to Macedonia to share the gospel with a man in Acts 16? Um, the conversion of Lydia, the demon-possessed slave girl, the jailer and his entire household in Acts 16. Acts 16 was packed full. Uh, what about the huge number of Gentiles that believed in Thessalonica and Berea in Acts 17? And remember what we learned about the Bereans? They weren't comfortable just simply taking his word for it. They studied the scriptures and they went back and they made sure that what they were listening to and hearing lined up with what they knew about the character of God in the Old Testament. Uh, Acts 17, he had an opportunity to preach the gospel to all the city leaders in the Areopagus in Athens. What a great forum. What a great opportunity God had presented for Paul to speak and be in the presence of so many influential leaders. Um, he would have told them about uh, being in Corinth for roughly a year and a half in Acts 18, how he had spent three years in Ephesus. We saw that in chapter 19. Remember how he was reminding the elders when he was saying goodbye to them? I spent three years with you guys in Ephesus, and you saw how I lived every single day, that I lived to glorify God, and that I never shied away from sharing the gospel to a Jew, to a Gentile, no matter where I was. I always lived to serve the Lord. Um, he probably shared all the miraculous things God did, like rescuing he and Silas from prison in Acts 16, uh, the number of times the Lord rescued him from the Jews, and all the extraordinary miracles that God did through him at Ephesus, um, and maybe even how God raised Eutychus through Paul after he fell out the window. Paul didn't raise Eutychus from the dead. Paul simply ran down there, laid on him, and God raised Eutychus. And it says that all those believers who were present there were encouraged by that because of what God was doing in and through Paul. And so verse 19 here, Luke is very careful to specifically credit God with what was happening through Paul's ministry. One by one, the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Turn to uh, Acts 19.11 also. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. Another reference. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. God was doing this. 
I mean, I even think about Pam's reminder to us here that as we reference the things that we're reading, yes, it is Luke recording it with his physical hand by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and all the research that he had done. It is Paul who's out there physically doing the stuff, but it is God who gets the credit. It is God who is the empowerment of Paul and Luke and everybody else that we're reading about. It's God who empowers each one of you for his glory as he chooses to use us as his hands and feet here on this side of heaven. And Paul himself you know, these two references are, are Luke's writings, but Paul himself is very careful to make sure that God receives all the credit, even in his own writings. I'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You don't have to go there if you don't want to, but it'll be 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Verse 30 through 12, 9. Paul says this about himself. If I have to boast then I'll boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the uh, ethnarch under Eretus, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up in the third heaven. And I know such a man, he's referring to himself, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will not boast, I will boast, but... On my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that I might depart from me, that this thorn in his side would go away. And the Lord had said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And so even Paul himself there, says, if I'm going to boast, then I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. Because when I boast in my weaknesses, what gets highlighted and what gets amplified is the grace of God. What you end up seeing as I tell you all about my weaknesses is just how great God is. And if you knew how depraved a man I really am in the flesh, then you would know and recognize how great God is. So he says, if you want boasting, then I'll boast in my weaknesses. And in fact, even the thing which nags at me regularly, whatever that was, we don't really know, it was nagging at Paul in such a way that when Paul asked the Lord to remove it, God said, no, because for you to deal with that brings honor and glory to me. It is a reminder that you need me. We've all got stuff like that in our lives. We've got those things in our lives where we go, boy, it sure would be a lot easier if I didn't have to deal with this, Lord. And he says, yeah, but you know what? Every time you have to deal with that, you have to call on my name. You have to rely on me. You need me. And what I expect from you is that when you share with others about what your trial is, what you're going through, is that I get the honor and I get the glory. And you're telling others about how good I am in your time of need. And so our first truth after this first section, our success in anything should always be attributed to God. Our success in anything should always be attributed to God. And that certainly includes ministry, right? Not in the least should it include ministry. And I think about, um, 
on, on Sunday evenings, our family has been slowly working through Genesis as a group, just kind of sitting down and just reading maybe a chapter on Sunday evenings to kind of remind ourselves of some of those good old stories that we all kind of grew up with and to learn some of those characters. You know, a lot of our biblical worldview today for believers has to start with Genesis. You know, how we interpret even Genesis 1 through 7 really influences the biblical worldview that we either ascribe to or reject, believe it or not. And so as our family has been working through Genesis in the evenings and just just reading these stories, last Sunday we read about Abram going and rescuing his nephew, his sloppy, prideful, you know, immature nephew Lot, who was a grown man, uh, who had chosen the fertile plains near the region of Sodom, and he, over a course of a chapter or two, had moved from living near Sodom eventually to living in Sodom. And we learn about uh, the king of Sodom and uh, a handful of other kings who decided to re- reject and rebel against the king Kedolomar, who was collecting taxes and tribute and so on and so forth. So these smaller kings came together and said, we've had enough of this. We're not going to pay these taxes and, and these duties anymore. Forget this. We're going to rebel. And those kings just squashed them. Those higher kings were like, oh, you're a little too big for your britches, are you? Well... We'll put an end to that. Captured them all, carried them off. A messenger escapes from Sodom, runs back to Abram and says, "Uh, Hey, Abram, so that big king and his buddies just came and took everybody away from Sodom and took them all captive. And you know who was in that group? Your nephew Lot. So Abram goes, All right, here we go again. So Abram grabs 300-some of his own men, from his own household, servants, employees, and does this midnight raid to rescue Lot and all the inhabitants of Sodom. Frees them, frees the king of Sodom. They come back, and some of you know what happened next. The king of Sodom said, Abram, I am so grateful for you, and I am so impressed with your skills. I want you to know that you let me have my people back. You can have all the spoils. You can have all the goods that you rescued. You can have all of the loot and the booty. Just go ahead and take it. And remember what Abram said? Nope. You keep your stuff. Because the last thing that I want is for anybody to say that Abram became successful and wealthy by way of the king of Sodom. Abram said, the last thing I ever want to have happen in this life is to be known for being successful and the credit go to another man and not the Lord who is the one who has made me successful. And so I think we see that with Paul and may that be true of our lives as well. That when somebody wants to just heap lots and lots of credit upon us for the success that the Lord has given us, maybe we be mindful and have a spirit of humility and humbleness that causes us to say, thank you, but all glory be to God. God is the one who has done this in my life. And so our second section this morning is going to be verses 20 to 22. And I had said earlier that what we're going to see here is after these believers, these elders and James, have heard all of the great things that Paul's been doing and that God has been doing through Paul, we're going to learn about a little bit of controversy. And so... James is going to tell Paul, um, there's a little bit of controversy that has arisen over your ministry. Look at verse 20 to 22. It says, And when they heard, they believed, or they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, 
that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So what we see here is that in verse, the first part of verse 20, uh, when they heard all of what God had been doing, they began glorifying God. Great. Awesome. God is being lifted up. People are being encouraged. It's great to hear how God is moving through your hands, Paul, through all of those Gentile regions, and many are being saved. Any of you guys watch um, ESPN Game Day? Uh, college uh, on Saturday mornings during college football season. You know, you have Kirk Herbstreet and Coach Lee Corso and, and several others, Chris Fowler, who do a um, little news story. Joe, you ever watch ESPN Game Day? Well, towards the end of their broadcast, as they're getting ready to conclude and close their show, and then it goes to whatever the first game is at noon, they will do their picks for all the big games. You know, All four or five panelists will share their pick for each of these big games and who they think is going to win. And uh, oftentimes, they'll go in order, and, and uh, Kirk, Her- Kirk Herbstreet will give his uh, vote, his opinion, his pick. And then right after him, you'll hear Coach Lee Corso go, not so fast, and he's calling Kirk to the carpet for a second saying, uh, I like what you just said, but not so fast. I've got an alternative. I think that's kind of what we're seeing here in, in verse uh, 20 to 21. Paul, great job. Great to hear what God's doing. Ah, not so fast. we got a problem here with some Jewish Christians. we got a problem here with some Jewish Christians because they're also hearing about what you're doing in those Gentile regions, and they got an issue with you. They got a problem with you. Like uh, George Costanza's dad on Festivus. I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about it. <laughs> Generational reference there. What we learn, what we learn here uh, from James and the elders, is that while God was saving many of the Jews through the ministry of Paul, he was doing the same, God was doing the same among the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea through the ministry of James and many others. Okay, So while Paul is, is sharing the gospel and Jews and Gentiles are being saved in all those regions that Paul has been traveling to, God's doing the same thing through James and others in Judea and Jerusalem. Jews are being saved, Gentiles are being saved. Okay, So that's happening simultaneously at the hands of God. And what we learn about many of the Jews who had become believers in Judea and Jerusalem is that they are zealous for the law. And what this means is that first, they were ardent observers of the law and Jewish customs, even in their Christianity. So even though they had been saved through faith in Christ Jesus and nothing else, they were still ardent observers of the law and a lot of the Jewish traditions. Okay, The second thing um, that this reveals is that they believed this should be the case for all Jewish Christians as well. Right? So they have been saved through the blood of Jesus and nothing more by grace through faith. Yet, they're still observing the law and holding to their Jewish traditions. That's a problem for themselves because they misunderstand the salvation that they have, right? But not only that, they expected and demanded that other Jewish Christians do the same. And that has now become their issue with Paul and the people that Paul has led to Christ. The Jews that Paul has led to Christ, they're saying, wait a second here, they need to keep observing the law and Jewish traditions just like we are. And they make some accusations. They're saying, Paul is actually teaching, they said in verse 21, he's actually teaching them to oppose Moses. He's instructing them to forsake Moses, which includes a lot of traditions, circumcision and many other things, right? Do we see that from Paul? Do we see Paul 
absolutely say, no, you've got to kick Moses to the curb and the law and just completely reject that. No. So it poses a couple of questions for us. Okay? If this controversy has arisen and these accusations about Paul are being made, we have two questions that we might want to answer. The first question is, did Paul teach Jews to abandon the law? Was that a primary agenda and teaching of Paul? Well, the short answer is there's no evidence in the Bible that he did. In fact, Paul's circumcision of Timothy suggests otherwise, because you guys might remember that Timothy was half Jewish and half Greek. And Paul insisted that, Timothy, if you're going to travel with me to those regions, and we're going to be in the presence of a lot of Jews, and they know that you have Jewish heritage, then I want you to be circumcised so that you don't become a stumbling block for them. So there isn't anything that they can take issue with. We're going to remove all of that. right? So in that sense, Paul honored some Jewish traditions when it was necessary. And here's what Paul does say about the law. He reminds us that the law itself doesn't save. Uh, Salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus. We've mentioned that. So Romans 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3, he reminds uh, the Romans, those who attempt to be justified by the law ultimately make themselves slaves to the law and will ultimately be condemned by the law. Um, Chapter 2, verse 20, the law gives us embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy, it's righteous, and good. This is what Paul is saying about the law. So he's not saying that there's anything inherently problematic with it. He's just saying it does not have the ability to save. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 4, the law is fulfilled in us who do not walk, walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in him. And Jesus said the same about himself when challenged. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. In other words, all of the things that the law required in order for a man to be recognized as righteous, insofar as somebody even could on this side of heaven, Jesus said, it's impossible for man to keep God's standard and God's law perfectly, but I'm going to do it. And in me, and in my blood, you now be considered righteous, and the law will be fulfilled in me because I am holy. You can't do it, but I can do it. I can do it for you. And and Paul also explains that Living according to the law in Jewish customs is done so as a means of honoring God. And he said that this is a matter of personal choice. Um, In Romans 14, you might remember that he discussed how uh, some might consider themselves much more holy because they could observe Jewish traditions and they could abstain from meat and all kinds of other things. And he's saying, hey, If somebody's conscience means that they need to do those things, then that's fine. Let them do them. You know that you're neither saved or condemned by what goes in your mouth, but respect that. Honor that. It's okay. So we see that the fabric of Scripture tells us that Paul was not out there completely rejecting and condemning the law. He was reminding his audience The law is good because it reveals sin. The law is good because it points to your need for a Savior. But the law itself does not have the ability to save you. You are saved through faith in Jesus. And so, the second question, did Paul still observe the law and Jewish customs himself? So, did he teach Jews to abandon the law? No. Now, what about himself? Did he still observe the law? Well, in Acts 20, verse 16, it appears that he still celebrated Pentecost. We saw that a couple weeks ago. He was trying to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost to celebrate it. Um, Acts 18, 18, we see at least one occasion where he made and kept a Nazarite vow. Um, 
in verse 24 here, we haven't read that yet, but in verse 24 we're going to see where James indicates that Paul was someone who walked orderly and kept the law. And then in verse, verses 19 through 21, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul summarizes his approach to the law as a Jew. And so then in verse 22, what we see here, it says, What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So James and the elders recognize that now that Paul's in town and they're aware of some controversy and some concerns that others have for Paul and they believe that he's been misleading people and teaching them wrong ways, James says, what should we do? What are we going to do about this? So, we'll get to that. But our second truth this morning from from these, these verses here is that success is often overshadowed by unsubstantiated or unnecessary controversy. Success is often overshadowed by unsubstantiated or unnecessary controversy. Um, I mentioned that Michael and I spoke yesterday on the telephone, and I said, well, you know, why don't you go ahead and send me your notes, and I'll see what I can do for tomorrow morning, meaning this morning. And we were talking a little bit about the fabric of this passage. And, and one of the, the examples that we both thought of, um, he mentioned what we often see when Chick-fil-A intends to go into an area and build a new restaurant. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but oftentimes what we see when a Chick-fil-A intends to go into an area, if it's um, a more liberal area, you'll see some controversy. You'll see some kickback. You've got a strong company that's viable, has a great product, it's loved by the masses, believers and non-believers, with employees who conduct themselves to a very high standard. I would challenge any of you who have ever had a bad experience at Chick-fil-A. Um, and yet, often what happens is, upon this news, you get some controversy, you get some kickback, and you get some rejection for what the CEO stands for, what the company at large stands for. They just don't like the biblical worldview that a company holds. And we're going through that right now, believe it or not. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the new one that's going to go in at Morrison High. Uh, there's a Chick-fil-A that's going to go in in the old TJ's location there at the northeast corner of Morrison High. And they have been working with the city of Columbus, the uh, Clintonville Area Commission, when you guys all know that Clintonville is a very liberal neighborhood. And they've expressed some concerns, and many are saying, we don't want you know, that group coming in because they're bigots and everything else that people want to say about Christianity. And yet, at the same time, Chick-fil-A is going to come they're going to offer a great product. They've met all of the aesthetic standards that the city of Columbus has asked for, that the Clintonville Area Commission has asked for. They are keeping the big historic TJ's sign that the city has asked for. You know what I mean? They're, they're complying and doing all of these things. They're going to employ people in the area. This is not a bad thing, friends. But it's unnecessary controversy that comes on the heels of what would otherwise be good news. And so we have the same in our own lives, that we will have success that is often overshadowed and unsubstantiated by unnecessary controversy. So our last section this morning, verses 23 to 26, I mentioned that James understands and recognizes, okay, we're going to have some controversy, we've got a problem, what are we going to do about this? And we're going to see James share his request with Paul, and we're going to see Paul submit to James' request. Verse 23, therefore do this that we tell you. Here's what we've got. We've got four men who are under a vow, a Nazarite vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, he wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, <clears throat> purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice 
of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So what we see is that in order to avoid the controversy from the Jewish Christians, James asks Paul to do a couple of things. There were four Christian Jews who had taken a Nazarite vow, and Paul was to take them into the temple to finish their vows, to complete their vows, to keep their promise, their pledge. He was to pay their expenses, and this covered having their hair cut off, um, as well as the cost of sacrifices and a few other things that were required for the Nazarite vow to be complete. Um, He was also, Paul was also to purify himself along with the men, which would include a a seven-day period uh, so that he could enter the temple for the sacrifices to be made on both himself and on their behalf. So this is the list of things that James is asking Paul to, to do, to execute, to observe, so that when these Jewish Christians see this, they'll understand, oh, maybe there isn't anything to these assumptions and these assertions, assertions that we are making. Uh, and James has two goals. First, to correct the misinformation. Um, look at 24. Uh, when they see this, they will know that nothing they've been told about you is correct, that you also walk orderly and you keep the law. That you aren't offensive to the other Jews, even Christian Jews. That you don't disregard the law. That you do accept the Jewish customs. The second thing is to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. You guys remember in Acts 15, there was a debate that arose um, about whether Gentiles needed to practice the law to be saved. So you might remember that um, Peter had shared with his Jewish brethren You guys won't believe what happened. But the gospel and salvation has been made available to Gentiles as well. And when they heard the gospel message, their experience looked an awful lot like ours did way back at Pentecost when we likewise were saved. And he he had to defend and tell his Jewish brethren, I'm telling you, this is the real deal. These Gentiles know Jesus personally, and Jesus has made salvation available to them as well. And one of the objections and issues that the Jews had at that time was, oh, those Gentiles need to keep doing all the Jewish customs. Those Gentiles need to keep circumcising. They need to continue to do all these things if they want to come into the fold. If they want to feel like they're part of us now, okay, so they've been saved in Jesus' blood, but they need to do all these other things. And the apostles all came together and they said, well, we need to understand and we need to know what is reasonable and what should be expected. And James and the others came up with the letter that they distributed to the churches and they said, hey, if you're a Jew and you've been saved in Christ Jesus' blood and you want to continue to do these things, that's fine. But you can't superimpose and demand on these Gentiles who have never been a part of that, who have never had that be a part of their lifestyle. They've never circumcised themselves. They don't need to do those things. They are saved just like you are through the blood of Christ. And that was their resolution. And that was the letter that they said, we're going to circulate these to the churches and we're going to help to unify the body of Christ and we're going to remind the Jews that they can't have these undue expectations of Gentiles. We're going to remind the Gentile believers that they can't look upon the Jews for silliness, for continuing to do the traditions and so on and so forth. And God will be glorified because there will be respect between these two backgrounds that have both been saved through faith and the grace of God. So we had that in Acts chapter 15, but that was with regards to the Jews looking at Gentiles. This is a little bit different here. This is Jewish Christians now looking at other Jewish Christians who don't seem to place a priority on the Jewish customs and the law. You see the subtle differences there? And James is thinking, 
We need to deal with this situation just like we did in Acts 15 where we wrote that letter. We need to remind Jewish Christians now who are accusing other Jewish Christians for rejecting the law that the law is not necessary for salvation. And if they're choosing not to hold and keep to it to a perfect T, that's okay. And so we see here in verse 25 that James's intent in having Paul, you know, help these four men with their Nazarite vow, having Paul cleanse himself for seven days, a period of purification, and go and offer the sacrifices of the temple and all that, that James's ultimate goal and concern was unity. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, he wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication, James's goal is let's promote unity and preserve unity in the body of Christ. And verse 26, Paul does exactly what James suggested. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. In a remarkable display of understanding, wisdom, and humility, Paul does just as James requested of him. I mean, he could have responded by claiming he was no longer bound by the law, right? Didn't he have every right to say, I don't need to do that, James? you kidding? You and I both know you're not saved by the law, I'm not saved by the law, and neither are they. He had every right to say that, but he didn't, did he? He understood the need to be sensitive to his fellow Jewish believers, not only for the sake of his own ministry, but for the sake of the unity within the body of Christ. And, and I'll go a step further and say, his humility and sensitivity was also a respect for James's ministry there. You know, he didn't come back to Jerusalem just kicking open the saloon doors like, I'm here, you know. He respected what God was doing through James and the elders there to build up the church of Christ. So here's our third truth. Godly success rarely, if ever, comes without submission and humility. Godly success rarely if ever, comes without submission and humility. And I was thinking about this, this truth, and I was thinking about um, our situation with our friend Mario that many of you um, just have heard about just briefly. Um, the very short version, he was arrested for something that he didn't do, had to spend 30 days at the Franklin County Sheriff's facility down on Jackson Pike, and we were finally able to get him out, and we were able to prevent the evidence that he was physically with me and present with me at the time of the incident. And, you know, he's all amped up in his spirit. The entire 30 days, I'm going down and I'm visiting him every Wednesday night. And I can see him just so amped up about the position he finds himself, which is understandable. Any of us would be extremely frustrated for being detained and arrested without cause or for being innocent. But I was always trying to calm him down. And my point in sharing this is that when he got out, I said, we are going to write a letter and send a card to that detective. What? I said, trust me. Trust me. I will write it, and you're going to sign it, because it's the right thing to do. Now, the last thing he wants to do is thank the detective that accused him and threw him into jail. And I said, you are here by the grace of God. You made enough bad decisions in life that put you too close to the situation in the first place, right? You're close enough that they had reason to look at you. And therefore, the fact that this detective found it in his heart to receive the evidence that I gave him, to examine all of it, and to clearly, rightly come to a proper conclusion 
is nothing but the grace of God. Now, we would say that seems obvious, and that seems like a given, but friends, in humanity, it's not. That detective didn't have to receive that information and objectively look at it. The fact that he did is nothing but the grace of God. And I said, Mario, we're going to get this card. I'll just write it. We're going to say, thank you, Detective Hendon. We appreciate your heart in this matter. And you're going to sign it. And he did. We sent it off. It's, it's humility and humbleness that the Lord expects out of us so that he is glorified and that others see him working through us, that we would disappear and what people would ultimately see is Jesus himself. And so our success in anything should always be attributed to God. We should be very careful to make sure that we're always acknowledging the source of any success we have and especially success in ministry. We should resist the temptation to seek the limelight or puff ourselves up and take the credit for, for what has happened and for what is successful through us. Um, success is often overshadowed or unsubstantiated with unnecessary controversy. We should not be surprised at this, right? I feel like every time controversy comes on the heels of a mountaintop experience, it like blindsides me every time. Like, like I don't know that's coming. It's not a guarantee, but I shouldn't be surprised by it, and it's okay. I need not be offended. I need not take it personally, but simply walk, trust the Lord, be humble, and honor him. And then lastly, godly success rarely, if ever, comes without submission and humility. You've heard it said that we are to live for an audience of one. Who cares if other people look at you and want to make an accusation of being humble or, or humiliated or, or whatever? You're, you're only living for one person, and that's our Father in Heaven. He's the only one that matters. So who cares what other people think? Who cares if people want to go, oh, look at them just roll over. Look at them turn the other cheek. So what? I'm not trying to make the rest of the world happy. I want the Lord to look down and say, that's Dustin in whom I am well pleased. And I should be living so that obstacles that could create disunity and division in the body of Christ are removed, subsided, mitigated, and don't become issues.